So tonight we will finally be concluding our series on the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, You know, this is really the path the Buddha laid out for us. Really clear things to pay attention to that turn the mind in the direction of freedom. Tonight I'm going to begin by jumping into uh, tonight's topic of, of the talk. Uh, which is right intention or right thought. This is the second aspect of the wisdom. Um, right view I spoke about last week, where you know we uh, right view in the ultimate sense is just seeing things as they are. And uh, the, boy, the Buddha pointed to a couple of things to pay attention to that are very helpful in really having that capacity to To see things deeply, to see the nature of things, um, just pointing to paying attention to cause and effect, and also to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And so th- tonight, right intention, right thought, is really about the volition, the motivation that is going to enable us to walk this path of awakening. No needing to have a volitional factor in there. Or, you know, it's all good ideas, but it goes nowhere. So, right intention sometimes gets translated as right thought, right aspiration, right attitude, um, and there's a lot that could be said about motivation itself. That, you know, this being a key component that, uh, you know, as the Buddha pointed to, that, you know, really what we turn our minds towards, that's what the inclination in our minds will be. And so if that's not based in something wholesome, then we are over and over again, you know, just planting seeds that are going to uh, cause pain, are going to be experienced as obstructions, um, are going to make things difficult in our lives. And so, you know, it's really helpful to have a motivation that is based in the wholesome. This is what will lead to the end of suffering. And so he talked about there being two classifications of thoughts, two basic, categories, two basic categories that he discovered before he was enlightened. But he also saw how these, this is what leads towards nibbana. And so he saw how thoughts of desire, ill will, and harmfulness lead to harm for oneself and others, they obstruct wisdom, and they lead away from nibbana. And he saw how thoughts of renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness were beneficial, conducive to growth and wisdom, and aid to the realization of nibbana. So tonight, this is what we're going to be looking at. You know, that... um, that if our motivation, if our intention, our thoughts are turned towards renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness, this is what will support us on our journey. It's said that we can understand this support we get from renunciation by understanding the Four Noble Truths in relation to ourselves. And then, you know, exploring the Four Noble Truths, we're really looking at the cause of suffering, being craving, and so, you know, just in seeing, seeing that for ourselves can really help us to see and understand 
the benefit that can be in renunciation. And we can find support for the intention of goodwill and non-harming through reflecting on the Four Noble Truths in relationship to others. To be aware of the pain and the suffering in others will bring forth through wisdom the seeing the importance of goodwill and harmlessness. As we practice here, this is where we can really see the effects of thoughts, both of those that are based in desire, based in ill will, and based in causing harm, and see their effect. And we can also see how when the mind is turned towards letting go, relinquishment, renunciation, or thoughts of benevolence, kindness, thoughts of non-harming, what the effect is in the mind. It's very tangible in our experience. So this is something that we really need to explore in our own minds. Otherwise, if we, you know, if we are just, you know, there's a moment of ill will and we think, oh, that's bad, that's wrong, have a sense of shutting down, it's not going to be based in wisdom. And really, you know, the Buddha, he, he's talking towards exploration, discovery, understanding, So really needing to look at these thoughts in our own minds. I'd like to share a story tonight that to me just points in an everyday way to the power of the turning the mind away from the habits that we have of ill will, hatred, cruelty, grasping towards that which is wholesome. Because, you know, when we really touch into this and feel the power of it in our own mind, when we see the profound impact it can have in the world, it helps to really bring it home. So it's not something that you know, we think of idealistically, but we really look at that turning of the mind in any moment. And so this is a, a, a story that ba- dates back to, um, I think it was 1999. In a, it's about an, a Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. She was raised on a reservation by a single mother. Uh, I just want to share a little bit about her to, so you have some sense of her as I tell the story about her. During her youth, she had exposure to the suffering that comes from abuse of alcohol and the, the real pain that it can lead to. And so, you know, she was very strongly, you know, as a young child, speaking out publicly against this. And, uh, you know, this person who had written this article had actually inquired of someone in uh, who worked with her, and, you know, and said, didn't they think it was dangerous that this young woman would be speaking so strongly in an environment where many people were using alcohol, and she was strongly speaking against it. And um, this person said of her that, he said, you have to understand, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. She was peer pressure. So it gives some indication of the strength of her personality. 
And she was said to have loved basketball. When she was in fifth grade, she'd heard that you could improve dribbling by bouncing the basketball a thousand times in each hand each day. And so she did this on the cement floor patio at her home, much to her mother's and sister's dismay. And it was also said of her when she was in eighth grade, she she was five feet, five inches tall, but her coach claimed that she played six feet tall. Uh, So, you know, this strong woman, young woman. And so she was on this basketball team that would travel. And some areas didn't tend to treat the Indians so well. Um, So sometimes this Indian Native American team would be playing a non-Indian team. And so this is where the story comes from. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. Lead is a town of about 3,200 people northwest of the reservation in the Black Hills. It is laid out among the mines that are its main industry and low wooded mountains hedged it around, around it. The brick high school building is set into a hillside. The school's only gym in those days was small, with tiers of gray paint painted concrete on which the spectator benches descended from just below the steel-beamed roof to the very edge of the basketball court an arrangement that greatly magnified the interior noise. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Led to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the, the Lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, a woo-woo-woo sound. The, the usual plan for the per-game warm-up was for the visiting team to run in onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Doni DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get commodity cheese. The Lead High School band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Doni de Grey, de Quarry, looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Doni became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Doni told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Doni gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped where she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coach Zaminga, at the rear of the line, did not know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Doni DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at the center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had completed many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose is a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like, get down, Doni DeCorey recalls. And then she started to sing. Sue Ann began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, 
using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate says. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket. She took the ball from Doni Decore and she ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket. She went up in the air and she laid the ball through the hoop while the fans cheer- were cheering loudly now. Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. I find it such a touching story, you know, the courageousness of this woman. And this is what we face in our minds. You know, we're up against all of these deeply ingrained habits, these habits that we keep perpetuating, greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's that simple turning, you know, letting go of that which is just creating the pain. You know, and it's not that we stand there and say, it's not fair, it's not right, it's unjust. We just turn the mind towards the wholesome, that which is helpful. And, it, you know, it must have taken this woman... Sue Ann, tremendous courage to do this. You know, in a whole stadium full of people, heckling. But when we know what's true, it's what we do. There's no choice. And we can do it with great joy the relinquishing of the suffering. This is what we do. This is the motivation, what it's based in. Yes, the habits are strong. And, you know, this to me, in my understanding, is why the Buddha gave, and, you know, tonight I'm really going to talk about just what a helpful helpful reflections, helpful ways you can turn the mind because these habits are so deep. You know, we don't always have that stability to just see things as they are. And so we have to explore. We have to, we have to look and sometimes really replace the unwholesome with the wholesome. Because the grooves, you know, it's like the groove in the mind is so strong towards what's wrong, what's not right. You know, it's the same groove that when we can look in the mirror and, you know, it doesn't matter what else is going on, we'll look and see what's wrong. You know, if there's a new pimple, a new frown line, whatever it might be. You know, that's when the groove is strong, that's the way the mind goes. And it's just, you know, retraining the mind. You know, to keep, to keep from going down the feeding of what really feeds greed, hatred, and delusion. Turning it to what instead feeds the wholesome. So beginning with thoughts of renunciation. You know, Renunciation is critical in the strengthening of wisdom because it's based in letting go, relinquishment, abandoning. And, you know, as wisdom strengthens, we see that what we are relinquishing is suffering. And then it's really not such a heavy word as it can seem. You know, when when our wisdom is not strong... And we still believe that we're going to find happiness in these experiences. When we, find, we think we're going to find happiness in getting things right, having what we want, 
what we think we want, when that's still there, we aren't going to believe that renunciation is so joyful. And the Buddha understood this because he'd seen it in his own mind. And so he said, what's helpful is to reflect on the drawback of sense pleasures, to see the limitation, to see how the attachment to sense pleasures doesn't deliver, doesn't give that promise of happiness. And so when he talked about renunciation, he gave this helpful way of exploring it. So which is what we do in our practice, to pay attention again. Pay attention when the mind is filled with craving, is filled with the wanting of these sense pleasures. Like, you know, being here on retreat, you know, many of us came from busy lives. We get here, and it's so quiet. You know, this is really a sense pleasure in this busy world, you know. And it's, it's just, you know, for a period of time, is so pleasant. But then we find in this environment the slightest little noise becomes amplified, can become jarring. And then, then, you know, that pleasantness is gone. And, you know, if it's somebody's rummaging around or someone's slamming a door, walking loudly, you know, just wanting it to go away, wanting the silence back. And then even, you know, maybe you sit in the still of the night and it's so quiet. But it's so quiet. There's no sound to help you stay awake. You know that there's, that <laughs> it's, it's not going to deliver the happiness. You know, at times it's pleasant, other times it's not. And this is, you know, we really see with any sense door experience that sometimes it will be really pleasant. You know, the first bite of chocolate is, well, if you like chocolate, can be very pleasant. If you have a one-pound bar of chocolate and you sit down and eat the whole thing, I bet you by the time you get to that last mouthful, that pleasant experience is gone. You know, it just doesn't last. The good sittings, you know, they don't last. They're pleasant, lovely delightful. If we crave them, it's suffering. It's dukkha. If we sit down and try and create them, how painful is that? I bet each of us knows that. So much of exploring the, the, the desire around sense pleasure it's like shifting the mind back to the wanting itself, feeling that. Seeing that, we see that all these sense pleasures are impermanent just like everything else. And that the grasping at, the craving for, the going in pursuit of, is exhausting. Have you ever had times in your practice where all you kept seeing was the wanting? You know, it's just like moment by moment by moment seeing the craving that is there. And just how tiring that is. This is a drawback. Seeing how temporary even the the moment where one feels fulfilled by a sense pleasure. Just seeing how fleeting this is. 
So the Buddha, it's not that he was saying, give it all up, repress it. He was saying, look, look at what you're chasing after. And then wisdom does the rest. Now when wisdom sees, understands, the relinquishment happens. He also said to look at the rewards of renunciation, which we experience in being here, the simplicity of the environment. You know, just... It's something that, even though we're experiencing it here on retreat, it can happen in our homes where we don't fill them with things, things that are, you know, are going to be calling on our attention. You know, we put things in our home for a reason. And if it's just, you know, has a multitude of things, it's going to be a multitude of things calling on your attention. And maybe some things are really helpful reminders. Maybe some things have a usefulness. But just seeing how there's a real reward. You you just feel this in your rooms as you're here. I know for me, being in these little rooms, there's room enough to put everything, and yet it's a very simple environment. (laughs) when I was not so long ago, just earlier this year, on retreat in a little cabin, uh, one of the greatest delights, you know, it was a one-room cabin that I had, and, you know, like you, just brought enough things for my retreat. One of the greatest joys of the retreat that I experienced, well, one, was that I never lost anything for those two weeks. (laughs) You know, there's a reward in there. In my home, I can frantically look for stuff that I have misplaced in the clutter. And just seeing, you know, feeling how that frees our energy, makes it available. And, uh, you know, also just feeling the energy of putting down. You know, maybe you've been eating your food And then, you know, you start to get tormented by the desire to go back for a second helping. And there's a real torment as you're caught up in the desire. And then suddenly wisdom sees it. You know, this is just desire. You know, don't have to act on it. Don't have to be identified with it. And the desire passes. And, you know, it's just put down. It's not grasped at. There's such a lightning that happens in these moments where we put down desire. Lama Yeshe, a a Tibetan teacher, once said, Renunciation is a wish to emerge from the repeated frustrations and disappointments of ordinary life. No, we just begin to see these things we chase after not worth it. We begin to see that renunciation is the deepest kindness to ourselves because it fosters the mind of non-clinging. So the first aspect of right thought, thoughts of renunciation, relinquishment, directly tied with, you know, a way of working with greed, the roots of desire, the roots of craving, and just letting it be a really open exploration. You know, even moment by moment, 
we can work with it to see, you know, our favorite fantasy lost in. Can we let go, relinquish, paying attention? (laughs) We begin to see when we're lost, we're really lost, disconnected. No way for truth to be known when we're lost. The mind is just gone. The reward of renunciation, that letting go, immediate connection, presence. The second form of right thought being the intention of goodwill. And this is really what counters ill will. In the last Dharma talk, Rebecca spoke about metta, or loving-kindness. This is really an intention of goodwill, where we step out of this view of reality that has us sitting at the center of it, being center stage in the universe. And we open our hearts to the welfare of others, the well-being, the happiness of others. It really also helps us to see a level of interconnectedness that is the way things are. Now this too, the scene of interconnectedness comes out of wisdom. And this intention of goodwill is really stepping into that world of interconnectedness. Last week I mentioned that it's hard to hate someone whom is suffering. And it's also hard to have ill will towards that which is not separate. You know, so much of our uh, sense of separation helps us to be able to foster ill will. But when we really break down the boundaries of separation, it's hard to harbor ill will. I had an experience some years ago where I really saw something of this. I was practicing out in a cabin, um, and I used to sit out on the porch a lot. And sitting out on the porch, there were a couple of mice that frequented the porch. And I actually have, I don't know if I still do, but I at that that time had a strong fear of mice. And so, you know, when I saw the mice, there was a contraction, a reaction. And this property also had a cat on it. So, you know, there I am on retreat. There's these two mice, and I know that I'm not going to kill these mice. You know, I'm living by the precepts, so that's out of the question. But then the the thought came in my mind, oh, there is a cat. (laughs) And I think you got the picture (laughs) of what my mind was doing. That it happened. You know, the, the cat and the mouse never met the mice. And then these mice kept frequenting. And, you know, as they kept coming by, I started to notice more about them. You know, one of the, I, I nicknamed them Double Trouble. And, and when they came along, one was really bold and the other was very timid. And so one would come bounding out and you know, actually they would tumble together. And at first I thought there were so many of them, that there must be ten of them. There was only two when they fell apart. But, you know, they just had this playful way of relating, one being bold, the other being timid, one moving forward, the other following in its shadow. And, you know, just over time, seeing these, these beings and connecting with them as living beings. 
And then one day the cat came. And it was just so interesting to see how suddenly there was fear. Where were the mice? Were they safe? Were they okay? You know, when I could really connect with them as living beings, how could I wish harm on them? You know, how could there be ill will towards them? And this is really what happens, what we're fostering when we turn our minds towards metta, loving kindness. It really helps us to live in a way that is all-inclusive. It's opening up our world to include all beings. I mean, just notice the difference in your own experience where there's been somebody who's irritated you you know, maybe sometimes we label them in our mind the enemy, you know, that there's just strong feelings towards. And then when we really shift the attention to the, just the very basic fact that they too are a human being and want to be happy in just the same way we want to be happy. When we can really connect on that shared level of being a living being, it really shifts. The intention of goodwill is really different than exalted states of pleasant experience, which we can sometimes imagine that that, you know, we could profoundly be emanating this sense of loving kindness, which sometimes there is. You know, there's just a radiating of really good feelings. But the intention of goodwill, it's really, you know, simple to look and see our words, our actions. What are they based in? Is it kindness? Is it care? Or is it ill will? Just to look and to see. When we choose kindness, we're realigning the heart with its basic inherent goodness. You know, something that we just forget. It's so, you know, it's interesting. It's like we have to relearn that kindness and care because we have forgotten through these habits. The practice of goodwill is, you know, in our sila, in the training of the virtuous hearts, taking care with our speech, action, livelihood. Generosity is a form of goodwill. You know, whether it's the generosity of presence, whether it's the generosity of material goods, energy, that that be based in a deep caring, caring for the welfare of others. Really seeing in the moments where there is ill will the effect that is there. No, we poison our language. We cause harm, hurt others, hurt ourselves when it's based in ill will. With awareness, we see this, recognize it. When we have the choice, Choosing kindness.
it's important that there be understanding around this because, you know, sometimes we hear of metta loving kindness and we can have an image of it as trying to mask over the anger and aversion. And that will lead to depression. That will lead to states of inner turmoil. That will lead to a deadening because it isn't based in wisdom, in the clear seeing. It isn't, ba- it's, you know, it comes from that place of should. I should be like this. So, again, pay attention in your own mind. See for yourself. Understand for yourself. Look deeply into this. we can begin to see how in those moments where ill will is there, that there can be a choice to shift our view. You know, and sometimes It's a really a deliberate thing. I just remembered this incident where I, ha- I had in my life where I sat in a, I had, uh, worked at a desk, and right across from me was another person. We sat head-on looking at each other. Now that person irritated me to no end. And so sitting in front of her all day was like sitting in the face of this reactivity. And, you know, it's just seeing this aversion, aversion, aversion. And it was really painful. And, you know, if I didn't learn to shift my view from that aversion, by the end of a day, I was just a wreck. But if we learn to shift our view, so what helps us to connect right there? What helps us to have an intention of goodwill? You know, whether it's the seeing that being as a fellow living being, whether it's contemplating a a wholesome quality in that woman, or, yeah, something that, an aspect of goodness that is there. Whether it's, you know, seeing in that moment the poison of ill will and relinquishing that. But, you know, just a real shift to not not stay entrenched there. And this is where we need to have volition. We need to have intention. We need to have that energy to do that. But this is, you know, very much like this um, woman that I spoke of earlier. The story of Sue Ann. So the second aspect of right thought being that of thoughts of goodwill the intention of goodwill. The third aspect being the intention of non-harming. And the basis of this is compassion. The quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. A responsiveness to the pain. It allows us in our lives to become bigger than ourselves. This too is, you know, based in interconnectedness, the based in the seeing of that. That, you know, when we see the pain, the suffering, there's a movement of heart that is natural and spontaneous to alleviate it. I'm not going to go into a lot about compassion tonight because Rebecca is actually going to be giving a full talk 
in, you know, in, in her next talk. But it is an aspect of this right thought, right intention. And it's a very important one. It's said to be the intention on which all bodhisattvas, all beings who are aspiring to awaken, are initiated by this. An intention of non-harming. Often our desire to practice is really rooted in this intention of non-harming, where, you know, in our lives we've just seen that if we don't pay attention, suffering happens. If we take care, if we're present, if we turn up in our lives, it helps to bring about an alleviation of that pain. It's a, there's an aspect of it where, you know, our hearts just get profoundly touched. And it allows us to be moved to respond to that. It helps us to stay engaged. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. A lot of the compassion that we may um, come in contact with as we're sitting here can really be based in that compassionate action, that deep desire to want to know truth to benefit all beings. The intention of compassion, of non-harming, it helps us to stay connected so that we're not shutting down our hearts. We live in a world with such immense suffering. And compassion doesn't become broken by that suffering doesn't fall into pity, grief, despair. But it touches. And, you know, compassion can have a balm-like sense to it. You know, it's a, a, it's, there's such a paradoxical feeling in compassion where you're touching into the depths of suffering and there's a sweet tenderness. This is expressed in something Ryokan, who was a a Japanese uh, Zen master. He said, When I think about the misery of those in this world... Their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. There's no distancing. As we sit here, this intention, thought of non-harming can be experienced in moments where deep rage emerges. And rather than buying into it or suppressing it, there's just this sense, ouch, this hurts. We might find that we're caught in some old pattern some habit that we keep just getting stuck in, feeling of being stuck. And rather than beating ourselves up, we just recognize this 
is suffering. In moments of seeing attachment, some aspect of craving, we see it as it is rather than judging. Somebody here is struggling in obvious pain. It's not that we go up and throw our arms around them, but we hold them silently in our hearts, caring for their suffering. And compassion is not just something that we have for others. We need it for ourselves. When compassion is present, we don't give up on ourselves, even though we may get lost, irritated, confused. Compassion helps us to be there in our times of deepest need. I'd like to share a teaching from Minja Rinpoche. He's uh, uh, one of my Tibetan teachers. He says, But the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. So the three kinds of right thought or right intention, the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of non-harming. These are places we can look in our own experience at times using the reflections when the forces of greed, ill will, cruelty are strong. We can, you know, actively turn the mind towards these right intentions. the reflection with the intention of renunciation, just reflecting on the pitfalls of sense pleasure and the reward of renunciation. In moments of ill will, practicing metta, loving kindness. In moments of cruelty, harmfulness, practicing karuna, or compassion. From the Buddha, whatever one reflects upon frequently becomes the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks sensual, hostile, or harmful thoughts, desire, ill will, and harmfulness become the inclination of mind. If one frequently thinks in the opposite way, renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness become the inclination of mind.
what we turn our minds towards. This is really the setting, the direction of our lives. Looking and see which way are we turning our minds? Is there a choice? And thus we come to the conclusion of the Eightfold Path. (laughs) My hope would be that we can really take to heart the Buddha's teachings here, what he was pointing to. No one has guidelines for our life. And the you know, the simple guidelines, the aspects of life we can pay attention to. That God, you know, just turn the mind towards what will help to free it, what will help us wake up, what will help us live in a way of non harming, inclusive. May we all realize the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment. May all of the wholesome energy of our practice be freely offered for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening, and thank you too for your dedication and the aspirations of your heart that help keep this practice, these teachings alive in the world. In closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.